I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. I was just doing, I was doing a little... Uh... Uh, surfing around on the internet, uh, reading about, uh, just sort of reading what people, how people had responded to your book. And I came across a lovely review that said, I believe it was said of Bach that if you wanted to see his mind at work, uh, mind at work, all you needed to do was study his scores. The same applies to Rough Ideas, the Rough Ideas author. Stephen has written an eminently readable book that demonstrates the breadth and depth of a mind that's serious, humorous, eclectic, futuristic, and above all, always compelling. So there we go. Thank you. Oh, you didn't say that. That was someone <laughs> I didn't else. Say that. But that's that my, my, my sentiments <laughs> entirely. All I've done for this evening is I've jotted down some of the um, some of the chapter headings, and mm. I thought we might talk about them. But first, before we start, perhaps you could tell us about the cover of the book. Well, the cover was a total chance thing. It, it was it was a photograph of me <clears throat> looking at a Mark Rothko painting in Chicago. A friend of mine is an amateur photographer, and we were just having a wonderful day and looking around at one of the best art museums in, in the world, and um, he was taking snaps, and this one came out, and I had this orange shirt on, and we realized afterwards that it's exactly the same color as the orange uh, of, of the picture. It looks like your head sort of come off. It does, yes. <laughs> and so we actually used this for a, a record cover, um, a, a record called The Late Masterpieces of Chopin. Um, and then we were thinking about a cover for the book, and actually that had been truncated, that cover. So this gives you a chance to see a little bit more of the Rothko and a little bit more of my torso. And um, and we, we showed it to, to Belinda at, at Faber, and she seemed to like it, so we went with it. And it's actually, I think it is quite striking, the, the black and the orange, although someone pointed out that it looked a little bit like an Ulsterman. And I hadn't made this connection between orange and the bowler hat, but it is not meant to be a King Billy tribute. Now, your book's called Rough Ideas, but it's always struck me that that in your profession, absolute pinpoint accuracy is needed, not so much in, in what you do, but... Next week, you may know that on Tuesday you're playing Beethoven's Fourth Piano Concerto, but you will also know that on April the 27th, 2023, <coughs> you might be playing the Emperor. I mean, 28th, actually. 28th. Yes. So how is that? How, I mean, what does that feel like? Because, I mean, that's not something most of us have to think with that precision that far ahead. Well, I think you have to be a really divided personality 
Because when you're in front of the piano on stage, or indeed when you're, you're writing music or something like that, you have to be free, uh, imaginative, daring, wild, crazy. But when you need to get to the airport in order to play that concert, you have to be very, very pinpoint precise. It's no good arriving five minutes after the flight's left if you're going to have to get there and rehearse with the orchestra and everything else. So it's really weird. And also you leave the keyboard and go backstage after the concert. And then suddenly you have to become a sort of bank manager and you have to be at a reception and be very nice to people uh, when you've been this crazy artist on stage. So you have to be able to divide yourself in this strange way. And I think some people do find it difficult to do that. Uh, either one of them dominates the other. And there are plenty of people who can't get themselves to the airport on time. And actually some wonderful people whose careers, I think, have been sort of made difficult by that very uh, inability. So, yeah. it's, a, it's But you must also have the situation where you are planning into the future, possibly even works you don't know yeah. when you commit to them. Yeah, that's very difficult. People will say, particularly Australia, they like to know in advance because they like to do all their publicity long in advance, you know, two years' time. So what will your program be? And you have to commit. I remember committing to a program when I first went there for Music Aviva. And I listed amongst the pieces the shop and schedule number one. Um, and, you know, 18 months after sending this program in, we were still a year before the concert was happening. I suddenly thought, actually, I think the schedule number two would probably work better. It's exactly the same length. And, oh, no, no, you said schedule number one. It has to be that. So, yeah, it's very, very prescriptive in that way. And, and you have to, to know what you're going to want to play. Um, with concertos, yeah, are, are you going to be able to? Will that piece feel good? You know, even I, I may feel passionately about Tchaikovsky now, but in three years, will I want to play that same piece? So, so how far ahead are you are you working, as it were? Well, we're talking about 2023, although not the Emperor on uh, on, uh, <laughs> on the 28th. April the 28th. Um, but it's certainly the next year is completely full, and there are things for the year after that. But there are gaps, and it's interesting that certain things um, can come in very last minute, including something like the proms, interestingly enough. I mean, we're talking about next summer, but not, we haven't, we've got a date, but it's not yet been absolutely finalised. And that's less than a year away. And the same with the, um, the mostly Mozart festival in New York, which is kind of New York's equivalent of the proms in a way. Uh, so things can come in at the last minute. And then still cancellations. This is something that happens certainly when you're beginning your career. Um, someone gets ill, management calls, can you play, you know, the Beethoven third next week in Bruges or something? And, and you say yes or no, and you go off and, and you do that. And that's how many careers, mm. including, well, Lang Lang, his yes. career actually began by Andre Watts getting sick in Chicago. And this young unknown Chinese pianist was given a chance to go and play and, and made a huge success of it. And, and now, you know, he's, he's the world superstar that he yeah, is. Everyone's so, waiting for him to be indisposed. So they can well, and that's him. happened, of course. And, yes. Yeah. So it's, it's a very interesting there are all sorts of ways that careers begin and how there's a, there's a nice bit actually in, in in the book where you talk about performing the Grieg in Amsterdam as a sort of half not standing in and half that was a wild day yes well I mean if you haven't read about this already yes it was I was playing uh, the Grieg piano concerto with the Netherlands Philharmonic at the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam and that was fine. We had our first rehearsal. In the afternoon of the first rehearsal, I got a call from my manager that the pianist had cancelled um, with the Netherlands Radio Philharmonic in the same hall the next day. And would I be prepared to stand in? And it was also the Grieg. So uh, I said, well, fine. So I ended up on that concert day having two rehearsals with two different orchestras, two different concerts, all playing the same piece. 
which tells you something about concert planning in Amsterdam, doesn't it? I don't think in London you'd have the same piece played on the same day by two different orchestras. Were they very different in your recollection? The conductors were. One was Andrew Lytton, um, with whom I recorded the piece, um, American, um, sort of full of pizzazz and, and kind of quite fast tempos. And, and the other was a, a Ukrainian conductor. I've actually forgotten his name now, but much more traditional, much thicker, actually, in sound, less transparent. Uh, and of course, I then have to be added into the mix with my own feelings about the Greeks. So it was fun. I, I'm really happy I did that. And I got two fees for the same thing. So <laughs> nobody's complaining. We were talking of, of sort of war horses and, and the Greek. We were just talking, as it were, backstage earlier about I, I'd spent two weeks in Moscow in the, in the summer at the Tchaikovsky competition and how I'd sat through six performances of the Tchaikovsky first piano concerto mm. in three days, I think it was and how everyone actually was very different. I mean, what's your feeling about the war horse? You kind of address it in, in the book mm. that, you know, something like the Tchaikovsky First Concerto, which is, you know, there must be, it's probably performed every single day of the year somewhere in, yeah. in the world. And actually, it's a great piece of music. Oh. And it, 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 there's that sort of problem where people say, oh, it's the Tchaikovsky, I'm really, you know, I'm not interested. And then you hear yeah. it done well and you think, my God, that's a yeah. good piece. Well, I mean, war horses are there because they win battles, you yes, know, yes. And, and they are constantly fascinating. But I think the other point to this is that for me, I've, I've spent as much time working on the Sharvenka fourth piano concerto as I did on the Tchaikovsky first, because it may be when you're listening that you hear these pieces all the time, but when you're actually working on a piece, it's just the same. So I, there's no difference in a piece that's well-known than a piece that's completely unknown. I have to put in the same hundreds of hours to learn that piece. But yeah, pieces become part of the repertoire because they're good, basically. And so this is true with the Brahms concertos with Tchaikovsky, with all of those names that keep coming round. Sometimes pieces go out of fashion a little bit, like the Grieg. The Grieg is yeah. not played as much today as it probably was in the 1950s. And also there's also that little group <clears throat> of, of works that aren't quite a concerto, Sort of things like the yeah. Frank, you know, the sort of Frank symphonic variations, those little Schumann, and you're thinking, well, how would you program them? Would you do one in one half, one in another, yeah. or you know, it's too too short really to justify a full fee. Yeah, you couldn't just. Yes, yes. I, well, again, I think this reflects concert programs were different in the past. They tended to be lots of smaller things. If you look at early proms programs, actually, mm. sometimes two intervals. Uh, there'll be a singer doing something. There'll be, it was more like a kind of gala concert than it is today. But they're wonderful. The Francis Symphonic Variations, of course, is a wonderful piece. And also a particular favourite of mine is the Weber Concertstück, mm. which I've played a lot. But that does need, that's 14 minutes. It does need to go with something else. But there are plenty sh of short concertos. The Liszt concertos are 20 yeah, minutes yeah. each. Uh, Mendelssohn concertos, 20 minutes. So yeah, you can fit these pieces in as long as the conductor's willing to, to add that to the, to the program. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely worth bringing mm -hmm. those out. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the composers you, you talk about very eloquently in the book, a composer who, <clears throat> apart from maybe the piano quintet, a pianist wouldn't generally go near, and that's Elgar's music. Right. Obviously means a lot to you, but actually not necessarily from a sort of practical approach. I wish there was more of it. I, I recorded one tiny little piece lasting two minutes um, of Elgar, but the, he didn't write much for the piano. He, he wasn't a pianist. In fact, he didn't really write much for the organ, even though he was an organist. You have the sonata, but I don't think there's anything else. Um, he was very much a man of, of the orchestra and of the chorus, of course. But yeah, he's someone that I feel... 
Um, I, I feel a very strong connection with him. I, I think I write about this in the book. I, I haven't read this book actually since we, we did the, I can't remember what <laughs> I wrote about it, but, um, about the dream of Gerontius, because this is a piece when I was a teenager that meant a tremendous amount to me. I wasn't listening to any classical music at all. I was listening to Led Zeppelin and Emerson Lake and Palmer and Alice Cooper posters on my bedroom wall. <laughs> and it was actually my composition teacher when I was at Chet who suggested I, I got to know this piece. And so this piece turned me around and got me interested in listening to serious music again. So Elgar has a very important um, part in my life. And also, I think, not coming from London, um, I, I converted to Roman Catholicism, something else that I talk about in the book, um, both things that I share with Elgar. Um, and actually, at this point in my life, also doubts that I have about that Roman Catholicism I share with Elgar. And I find that very interesting um, you, 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 you sense this tortured nature of mm. Elgar. There's a lot of contradictions in that man, and I find that fascinating. He, he's a composer that, that, that brings out a, a deep inner anguish, I think, in a way that few do. And it's, it's, he's one of those composers, interesting that, you know, he's very, to, to many people, he's very British. He's kind of quintessential mm. British. But actually, everything about his musical language looks to Germany. Yeah. Well, as did the world in which he he was. You know, this is the world in which Queen Victoria only spoke German at home. Um, You know, this is when Mendelssohn came to visit the royal family. He would go to Buckingham Palace because he could finally speak German, you know. Actually, just briefly, a little, talking of Queen Victoria, you recently played her piano. I did, yes. How was that? Oh, it was great fun. I don't know whether any of you saw that gold monstrosity that we brought, <laughs> uh, that only three people were allowed to touch while it was outside the palace. It was a real palaver. Um, but, you know, it was a very touching thing because I played it in the palace. In fact, I did an in-tune broadcast once on it. And it sounded very nice. It's a very carpeted room there um, with a lot of drapes and so on. And, um, you know, I thought, well, maybe we could do something with it. And eventually, actually, it was my partner who suggested to take it to the proms. And I said, but you're mad. It won't, it'll sound like this in the prom. Nobody will be able to hear it. You know, I'll be playing away and people, have <laughs> he started playing yet? But the most amazing thing about that is we, on the morning of the concert, we couldn't have it there earlier than that. It was delivered and, of course, looked splendid there. And I went to play it. And actually, it sounded just wonderful there. It, it somehow glowed in this space. And it had never been played outside the palace in 150 years. And I, I don't believe in ghosts, but I did have for a moment a thought that this piano had its sort of inner life. And it was finally saying, well, at last you're taking me seriously. Or, you know, I've waited 150 years for this moment. And in Albert's Hall. In, in Albert's Hall. The whole thing with the 200th anniversary of both of their births. Um, <laughs> Aside from any musical considerations, was just a wonderful occasion, and I, it was a great. I think we all enjoyed, it. and the orchestra were looking around, saying, "Wow, this piano sounds amazing!" You know, so we, we had a great time with it. And then, as soon as the concert was finished, it and there it is. It's backing Buckingham Palace. Who knows if it'll come out in the next yes. hundred and fifty years? Now you travel an enormous amount for your yeah. for your work. So tell us how you sort of fit in the the writing side of this. Um, Well, I think if I didn't travel, I wouldn't write anything at all, because it is those long uh, flights, uh, endless nights spent in hotels. I made a bit of a decision when I started my uh, career in my 20s not to watch television in hotel rooms. And I must say, I'm very glad I made that decision. A lot of my life is spent in America, and and I'm sure most of you know, uh, you switch on the television in America, there's not a lot of interest to see. There's there's an awful lot of advertisements, and you end up just going channel to channel. Even movies are endlessly broken up. So I spend a lot of that time writing. 
And uh, planes too. I, I rarely watch movies on planes unless there's something that I haven't been able to see in the cinema that I really want to see. So just, I was earlier this week uh, coming back from Taipei to Singapore and Singapore to London, a lot of time in the air. So I was actually composing on a lot of that trip. Um, and uh, I found it a very fruitful place to do that. Uh, so yeah, I, that's that's how I write. Is is because I've always I've always heard from musician friends that one of the worst things to do is you open a score, and immediately your neighbour suddenly starts, and you you basically want them to <laughs> shut up, and actually they see the music, and that's it, they're yeah. off, and you that's your your entire <laughs> yes, flight. It can gone. be very tricky, yes. But uh, no, I, I if I open my computer and angle it in the right way, uh, then it's not so bad. But yeah, if you're writing by hand, certainly people come over and say. Um, you know, are you a musician? It's, it's lovely because nobody knows who classical musicians are. So, uh, you know, people come, Oh, are you a musician? And yes. Well, what, so what, what, do you, I, oh, I, I'm a pianist. And oh, what's your name? You know, and Stephen, <laughs> Oh, never heard of you. You know, <laughs> are you any good? It's a wonderful way of keeping you grounded. <laughs> oh, my aunt was a concert pianist is the other line you get. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, I mean, the other composer actually you write beautifully about is, is Wagner and another one who's sort of completely out of yes. bounds for, for pianists because yeah. they just, I don't think there's anything. Is oh, there? there are. There are a few yeah, little oh, pieces. I played a little album blatt. Um, it was very thin, I have to say, although it had a little touch of Meisterzinger in half a bar in the middle. <laughs> um, but no, I did a program in which I played Richard Strauss, Wagner and Bruckner, none of whom wrote a lot of piano music, but it was a kind of an interesting progression before a set of Brahms pieces. Mm. So I played this little Wagner piece. No, again, well, if, if Elgar was a man of the orchestra and of the chorus, then Wagner was obviously a man of the theatre. And, uh, and he still believed, I think, that, that his greatest strength w- were the words. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, the drama was, and, and actually Simon Callow made the point that, you know, if he really was able to have friends over for the evening and just read the, 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 the um, libretti of his uh, operas and have no music at all, he must have been an amazing actor and an amazing, compelling personality. So, uh, not much for, for the piano, but he is one of those composers who, who, he doesn't, I mean, he, he forces you to enter into his world. I mean, physically, you, can't you know, he different. locks the doors and you're stuck there for however many hours. And also musically, there's almost a narcotic mm. uh, aspect to, to Wagner. You find yourself taken in like there's something gone into the atmosphere where, where you, you, you know, you, you're sort of not poisoned. Well, some people might say that, but, but you're intoxicated by this, this, the music and the world and, and everything else. And of course, it, it's wonderful and it can also be used for, for bad purposes as it has been in yes. history yes and when you go to a, a concert you know where you're you're literally there as the audience can you sort of switch off Stephen Huff the musician because I I was at the proms a few years ago and there was quite an eminent conductor in the box with me and we were listening to a Haydn symphony and I said actually can you listen to this and he said not really because I'm just listening to it as mm. a sort of craftsman and you know I'm interested in what he's doing here and how they get around that but I can't yeah. actually surrender to the performance can you it depends I love to go to concerts when a, a, an interpretation is completely different from what I would do but is completely convincing and I find that fascinating and that with great music that's that's what keeps everything fresh is there's no one way of doing anything I don't like to hear, well, I was about to say I don't like to hear really bad performances, but actually I do, because they make me feel so much better. I think, well, maybe even on my bad day I can do better than that. I think it's the middle range ones where nothing really is being said and it's a little bit dull and you think, well, do I really need to hear a Beethoven sonata? 
like this again. But actually, more, more what happens is when I see someone coming in from the wings, I can't believe that I ever actually do this myself. I don't know whether any of you have had similar experiences in, in your own professions. When you see someone else doing it, you for a minute think, well, gosh, what must it be like to play the piano? In? But, oh, wait a minute, that's what I do. And I know it sounds silly, but there are times when I see someone, I think, how do they remember all of that? And then I think again, well, that's what I'm meant to be do, doing. Do you too. suffer from nerves ever? On, on stage. Yeah, I mean, every time in some way, it, it's never, well, it's sometimes really horrible, but only 5% of the time. Most of the times it's, it, it, it varies between a good kind of excitement and adrenaline and then a feeling, yes, of, of am I really ready for this? Because this is the great panic of, of waking up in the morning, you know, am I prepared? You know, mm. I'm playing this piece next week. Is it ready? Will I remember? Is it... And Harold Bauer, um, the English pianist, great, great pianist, the dedicatee of, of um, Ravel's uh, Ondine, actually, he wrote a marvellous book that I really recommend called His Book, and it's a memoir. And he talks about the day that he retired. He finally decided never to play again. And he said for the first time in his life, he felt that he didn't wake up in the morning with a panic, with, am I ready? Where am I going next? What's this repertoire? And so I, I've... It's it's a wonderful panic because what you do is so enriching, mm. but it's always there. You're never really on holiday. You can never really leave it. Because well, I mean, one of the bits that had me laughing out loud in the book, and I, I can't unfortunately remember her name, but she gave up performance as a result of this. Who was so nervous that there was a most terrible sort of outburst, if that's the right term, on stage, where she yes. basically. Well, do you want to tell the story, can you, if you can remember? Well, this was one of my teachers, actually. And it's I've heard it from so many people that it has to be true, though I wasn't there to witness it. It was at Aspen Music Festival, and she was playing the Schumann Piano Concerto, which has a very nerve-wracking opening, because if it goes wrong, you feel like you might as well stop right there. Um, and she made a huge mess of it and hit every single wrong note, and it finished. And then she actually, yeah, her lunch appeared on the keyboard. Um, so, um, if that's not... I think if that's going to happen more than once, then maybe you're in the wrong business, aren't you? Really? Yeah. Um, but I think it's a very sad thing that there are some incredible musicians who've never been able to have careers because of nerves. And it's, you know, there, and I think we, I, I also talk about the business of memorizing because I'm convinced that nerves and memorizing are two things that often go together. It's the fear of forgetting. Not many people are afraid of playing wrong notes or of mm. making a mess because actually you can get through that and it can sometimes be part of the excitement of the moment. But what you, you fear, and it must be true for actors too, is actually just a blank on stage and you just stop, especially if there's an orchestra there. And, you know, I, I've seen this happen sometimes and it's, you know, it's a, it's a torture to but watch. But do you think, do you think this, this sort of relatively modern obsession with not bring, not having any music near you. I mean, conductors nearly always do it. Yeah. Concertos. I mean, do you think that puts an unnecessary pressure? Because even if you go to a concerto and, and the pianist has got the score, of course they know the piece. I mean, yeah. it's ridiculous to think, yeah. oh, well, they've got the score because they don't really know it. I mean, nobody would be mad enough yeah. to go out. Well, who knows? But I mean, do you think? Do you think actually not having the music? Is a, is a good or a bad thing? Or? Well, there is a chapter on this mm. very uh, topic of the pros and the cons, and, yeah. and there, are, there are both sides to this. I think it's very important for students to learn how to play from memory, because I think if you never memorize a piece ever, then somehow you're never going to get to that point where you feel one with it. And, and then I think it depends on the repertoire. 
Uh, Rachmaninoff wrote his music to be played from memory because that was what people always did. Now it's there's much more flexibility, and many young people even are playing with iPads, of course, so you can't even see whether they're playing from the music or not. Um, but at the time of Rachmaninoff, it was just if you couldn't play from memory, then you didn't have a career. It was as simple as that. Only very old people, Myra Hess, I think, at the end of her life was playing from the score uh, and so on. But I think you'd have to say, if you have gone through that ordeal of playing from memory, and then you just feel later on that you actually play better with the score there, I don't see a problem with doing that. Although in a competition, I don't think we're ever going to get to the point when people can play from the score routinely. Usually with contemporary music, there's a bit of leeway there. But if you come on to play a Beethoven sonata in a competition like the one you you were at and, and put up the music and have a page turn and going like this, I don't think it's going to work too well with the jury. Yeah. Um, it's partly the theatre of it. You know, when you play, say, Liszt, of course, who started this whole idea of playing from memory. Because this is one of the interesting things is when, when a, one of Chopin's students played one of his ballads for him, from memory. He shouted at the student, how dare you play from memory? Because then it would have looked like that the student was pretending it was his own piece. Because people improvised, and if you put the music up, it meant that it was not an improvised piece, it was a piece that was actually written down. But Liszt conceived this idea of playing from memory because he, people were then playing repertoire that was already written. And for Liszt, being on stage was drama, it was theatre. And he changed the whole idea of um, of playing solo piano in concert. He invented this term recital, which we still use today, which of course has a, a literary um, uh, inspiration. But this idea that we, we, we're like actors with our music on, on the stage. So to play the Liszt Sonata for me from the score, it would, it would be a different experience. I wouldn't feel that same sense of conjuring up, you know, when the piece begins with these very soft um, notes in the bass, these staccato Gs, you, be, to be looking up at the score playing those, it wouldn't be the same. So, but of course, there was a you know there was a period back in the nineteenth century where the composer was the pianist, mm-hmm. as you've said, and then a little bit later on, yeah. the, the the concert pianist emerged yeah. as a profession and and didn't compose. That's right. It might have composed, but not at the same kind of level. Yeah. But actually, every performer composed until about the nineteen thirties. Uh, even if they wrote very insignificant little um, encore pieces, they all composed. And so uh, this is something else that I think I, I, I spoke about in the book. I think it's terribly important that people do compose when they're at college because it's like if you can read, you can write. Anyone can write an essay. Anyone can write a poem. They could be terrible, but it's actually a technique. And actually, the more you do it, the more you get into doing it. If you can read music, you can write music. Again, you can write a fugue, it's a technique, it may not be like Bach, but you can write one. And I think people should, because I think you do look at music differently, like you look at words differently, if you've actually created them yourself. Mm-hmm. And you, I mean, you're increasingly known as a composer. I mean, is that yet another thing to slot in amongst your, you know, your painting and your playing? And I mean, how... Well, the painting is really just oh, for fun. I don't yeah. include that in, in anything that I, I take very seriously. But um, yeah, the composing, I, I wrote a lot of music when I was a kid. In fact, I wrote a lot for the first 20 years of my life. And then for the next 20 years, I wrote virtually nothing at all, except a few transcriptions and encore pieces. And then... Since then, it's not 20 years yet, thank goodness, but um, I've been writing a lot, and um, it's become a really important part of my, my life. I would hate to take that away 
Uh, I just feel it's it's a, a way of self-expression. And has that impinged on the, the number of concerts you give? I mean, you've sort of said, I'm going to ease back to give myself more time to compose or... It's impinged on the amount of repertoire I've learned, not really the number of concerts mm-hmm. I've played. So I don't any longer learn the, the Emil Zauer Piano Concerto or take on uh, big commissions from other composers. Uh, I just, I've, and also chamber music, I've limited the amount of chamber music I do because something has to give. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still play um, the same number of concerts, I think, as I did. But I think that might change at some point. But playing the piano is still something that's until, well, I still can until arthritis sets in. I want to keep doing that. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you know, you're, you're one of the, the, the few pianists who records, I mean, you know, with, with considerable frequency. I mean, you know, with it, back in the old days, you know, the, in the major companies, people used to do three or four recordings a year. Mm-hmm. Now it's one every 18 months. And yeah. you're very lucky with Hyperion. Um, you've also tended to record sort of complete oeuvre. So, you know, all the Rachmaninoff concertante works, mm. all the Tchaikovsky. Mm. You've just recently recorded all the Beethoven for for yep. um, release next year. I mean, do you like the sort of idea of let's do the whole of a composer's output in that genre? Only if all the music is good. Actually, I don't really necessarily like the idea of, of complete works unless I really believe in them. And I think, I, well, actually with Sansons, it was an interesting case. I did all the, all the music for piano and orchestra of Sansons. And I really didn't want to do this. And I said to Hyperion, you know, I want to record two, four, and five, which is one CD. And they're probably the, well, they're the most well-known ones. And I think it was Mike Spring at the time said, well, actually, we'd really, you know, we'd like one and three, really. And while you're at it, we'd like the Wedding Cake, Caprice, the Allegro Passionata, the Rhapsody of Verne, and Africa. And I said no. And we, I, we left it for a year or two years. And in the end, I thought, okay, well, maybe it would be fun to do. So I'm glad that we, we did that. But presumably with a lot of those works, you'd be learning them just for the recording yeah. because the opportunity to perform them would be relatively limited. Well, in fact, all of those, I, I've only ever played two, four and five in concert. All the rest I just did once in the recording studio. Is that a, is that a very different discipline? Or you, you, you're still getting it to performance level, yeah, but no, it's, then it's gone. It's just, well, with the third concerto, it would take... Uh, it, it, I think it's a piece that wouldn't work unless you'd rehearsed it enough, unless the orchestra was fantastically on form. It's, some pieces work well on tour and others don't. And it's important to know those, because sometimes you just don't have enough rehearsal. Rachmaninoff Fourth is a piece that doesn't work well unless you really have had enough time. Mm. And when we recorded that, we recorded that in concerts, of course, we had two hours more rehearsal than I've ever had for that piece anywhere else before. And I really think it shows because by the time we were playing it, the orchestra knew the music. So often what happens with that piece is in the first concert, it's okay, but it's a bit seat of the pants because the rhythms are so strange and off, off, off center. And by the third performance, if you get to do three, people are finally settling in. So we got rid of that and we actually added the extra things. So I really... It's one of the things that I'm, I'm most happiest that we did um, over the recording. Do you think that's something we miss out in this country by not having repeat concerts? I mean, they don't Definitely. happen very often here, yeah. whereas in, you know, Berlin Phil, three, in, in America, yeah. nearly always three, possibly yeah. even four. Even five sometimes, yeah. Uh, I think New York Phil sometimes do five. It's very nice if you've got to a place, you put all that rehearsal in and you get to do it a few times. Because the first day is always fraught with dress rehearsals and everything else and often interviews for the radio. And so if it's just that one performance, it's, it's a very, very 
chaotic kind of day. And what happens in America is, yes, you have that first chaotic day, but then you have two other days when you can go to the art museum in the afternoon or you can see friends for lunch, and then you have the concert in the evening. It's a very different kind of, of, of setup. And it, it made possible those recordings that I did in America of the complete Rachmaninoff's and Tchaikovsky's because we had a number of performances from which we could take the best bits and the best movements and, and, and work a recording from that, even though they were all live. Mm-hmm. And do you, do you like the discipline or, or the experience of studio recordings as opposed to live recordings? Studio with an orchestra is not much fun because it's very, very tight with mm-hmm. time. And there are all sorts of considerations of, you know, if you go five minutes over time, it's £20,000, just like that. So record companies don't like that. It's <laughs> certainly not my record company. I, it always it always sh- slightly shocks me in America that, you know, like rehearsal times, when just before, five minutes before the end of the end of the period, the, the union guy appears in the wings and then Stopwatch, comes. Yeah. And then literally, I, I remember once seeing Eschenbach in Philadelphia and he just did put his hands in front of the score to just say, you've got to stop. And it yeah. just struck me as such an incredibly sort of intrusive and almost violent act. Well, the Tchaikovsky, uh, Dallas was okay with the Rachmaninoff. The Tchaikovsky's in Minnesota was, I don't think I've ever been more stressed in my life because we had... We had half an hour patch time. So patching, you know, people say, well, let the recording go as it is live. Actually, you don't really want that because there's an annoying cough somewhere. You don't want to hear that every time you hear it. The horn player comes in a split second late. It's fine in a concert, but every time you hear it, you just don't want it. So little things you do need to fix. So it was, no, it was 40 minutes patch time of which 10 minutes had to be break but not all at once. So you could do a patch and then put on the stopwatch. So you, you had to have 10 minutes of that stopwatch was, was actually not playing. And it was incredibly stressful because Andrew Keener, the, the producer, would say, OK, so second movement, bar 63, uh, the oboe has never been right. So now we do that. So it's so a take and you're, you're on and you're, I may be flying all over the keyboard. And you really have to get it because then you have another 10 points that you have to get. And then the stopwatch comes on. And yes, you know, the, the union person comes in. Any a change to, to the schedule had to go through New York phone calls in New York. Actually, it's American. You, amazing in America, you think of, of it as being, in a sense, the ultra-capitalist sort of world. But actually, there's a lot of rules that were established in the 1960s, and a lot of them are quite left-wing, really, and, 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 mm. and at the time were very important. Because I don't think you're allowed, to, for example, I don't think you'd be allowed to record the cadenzas sort of you know, with after, them when, with the, no, when the orchestra's gone home. No, we, you can do that. Can you do that? Yeah, you, what you can't do is record rehearsals. Uh, which is very useful to be able to do because you get a lot of good material in rehearsals when people are relaxed. Uh, you can't do that in America. So, and that was, again, it was a very good rules at the time because people were exploiting when, when records really mattered and, and, and so on. You could record the rehearsals and make another record out of that and the, and the musicians wouldn't get paid and that was very unfair. That never happens now. So this is a rule that's been stuck in that, that, that point of time. And in fact, I think we'll have to change because so few American orchestras can afford to make records now because yes. it's just so astronomical. Yeah. Uh, and we, all sorts of funny little things. We wanted to record all versions of the second movement of the second concerto. There were three on, on my recording. There's the original Tchaikovsky, there's a Silotti truncated one, and there's a version that I made that kind of took what I think Tchaikovsky was trying to do when he wanted the movement to be re- reformed. With the Silotti one, uh, we, uh, we needed to give them 48 hours notice 
um, so that it could be, it had to be on the notice board for 48 hours that we were going to do this. And I think we were just 40 hours, so we couldn't do it. So is, is, the, is the thinking that they have to have time to rehearse? Or, or just to get it into their schedule so right. that they don't have teaching commitments or something else. So we had to come and do that again six months later. And it was, it's crazy. But anyway, there it is, the recording. What, what, what role do you, do you feel your recordings, I mean, what, what do they do for you? I mean, what are they there for? Well, they fill a gap on the shelf, <laughs> and uh, well, not nowadays. They even do <laughs> no, that. they don't do that, do they? Um, I think all of us have this feeling of wanting to preserve something that we've done, even if it's just taking photographs on our phone. You know, we have a wonderful birthday party. It's nice to have a memento. I mean, that's on the, on the most basic level. And I think when you've played pieces a lot and you feel that you have something to say about them, it's it's just a natural desire to, to, to put them into some sort of permanent form. And I think all of us who make records, um, they're not always the, uh, our final thoughts. And in fact, with the Brahms concertos, I've recorded those twice now at different times, and I actually feel I'd like to do the second again. The first, is, I, I think, is okay in, in those versions. Um, but it's just, yeah, you, you, you want to... And it also it, it encourages you to solidify your thoughts in some ways because you can have things flying around and ideas and so on but it's quite nice to think now what do i really think about this passage you know what what's brahms doing here how can i i find a way to convey that to the audience and making a recording does make you make certain decisions which i think is a healthy and do you thing. listen to them or, or once you've made it is that because very few Not musicians often. i know no go near them some I, I listened quite recently to a record of york bowen piano music that i I'd, I'd made back in the 80s, I suppose. Uh, no, 90s. Because I, I don't play any of that music anymore, and I'd really forgotten it. And, and it was rather, it did, sounded like someone else. I, I didn't remember some of the pieces at the time. And I quite enjoyed listening to that again. Um, but I don't listen to my own records, certainly all the time. And I never do when I'm playing those pieces. I wouldn't say, well, I'm going to play Brahms next week. How, what's my record like? Because I really want to come into that music Fresh. And I mean, in fact, do you think I, records are a danger for younger you know, oh, students yes. who, who then come up with a sort of patchwork of a little bit of Volette and a bit of Tchaikovsky and a bit of... You've bit. said it, yeah. And I've even heard students say, well, you know, Ashkenazi does this here and, and Rubenstein does that. No, that shouldn't be. You, you need to, it's Well, I guess it's like a play, really. If you're going to play Hamlet or something, you know, the last thing you should be doing is seeing whatever you want. You, you, you need to go to Shakespeare. and You need to, to go inside that character. And I think it's very true when you're playing a piece. Because otherwise, who wants to hear either a patchwork or, uh, which can also happen, someone who just copies someone else's performances. I've, I have heard people's Prokofiev third concertos that are sort of Argerich copies. And, and you know, I, why would I want to hear that? I'd rather just hear her. Um, so, yeah, and I think you can discover new things. And actually, with certain pieces, there are certain traditions. There are good traditions. There are bad traditions. There are traditions that, that just get done every way, every time. And if you go back to the score, actually, why not do what the composer wrote or think from that point and, and make those discoveries yourself? Mm. Yeah. And that must, re that must require a bit of discipline on the part of the performer to kind of shrug off the traditions. Yeah. Which, I mean, recently we've... We have uh, Christian Tetzlaff on our front cover of Gramophone, and he's recently recorded the Beethoven Concerto. And if you listen to it, you think, gosh, I've never noticed that. Oh, that's terribly quiet. Mm. And then you look in the score, and it's all there. Yeah, well, that's the ideal, I think, yeah. what, what Christian's done there. Um, yeah, and I think it's, it's, 
it just limits you. It, it just there's actually more in the music than yet we've discovered. And I think if you stop with all these different recordings, then you know, especially when you're just beginning a piece, it really drives me crazy when students, you know, you assign them a piece. And the first thing they do is go to the library and listen to every recording they possibly can of the piece. No, you know, it, it's a longer journey and it takes longer and it does take the patience, as you say, because you, you have to struggle through. It's reinventing the wheel sometimes and there are different, difficult interpretive decisions. I, thinking of Brahms' second concerto, there are ways of balancing that whole piece. It's a very difficult piece to bring off because it's long, it's four movements, and Brahms presents you with this after all the weight that's gone before, this very light, grazioso last movement. And how do you keep that so it doesn't seem like an anticlimax? And you have to work through that yourself, I think, to discover that, not to find out, you know, what Gilles did. Yes, yes. Later, perhaps, once you've yes. got your own decision. then Because, of course, be that was one of the most astounding at the Tchaikovsky competition for the finals. <coughs> When they get to the concertos, and we, we sat through 14 piano concertos in three evenings, and the guy who won, um, Alexander Kantov, played the Tchaikovsky second piano concerto, goes off stage, comes back, and plays the Brahms second concerto. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's a lot of playing. But you do the, you, you do the two Brahms in, a, in an evening. I did in the morning, actually. Or a morning. I've never done it in an evening. <laughs> maybe, maybe a morning is easier. <laughs> I don't know. No, that was when we recorded it at, in Salzburg. We, we did it. Yeah, it was the concert was both concertos. Um, it's, it's better than some mega concerts because that's both very different works. And you have early Brahms and sort of mid-late Brahms. And it's wonderful to see that. And I'm going to be doing both Liszt concertos in London next, this season, <coughs> later this season, with the OAE on a piano from the period of Liszt, which I think will be very interesting. Well, those are short, so that's a different mm -hmm. question. But, yeah, sometimes... I, I've done Sansons, too, in the same concert. I'm going to be doing that as well. I only say it to you in here. I don't want to say it to the concert presenter. <laughs> I don't think, actually, that's the best, because I, I love Sansons, but actually it, it, they're not different enough to make it uh, interesting. Rubinstein talks about this, about how he never played both Chopin concertos in the same concert because they were too, too close to each other. And I understand that. But the lists, I think there is enough that's different there. Cause, and there is, the course, the, the danger when, you know, like these Gergiev's where they do, Gergiev spectaculars where they do all five Prokofiev's in an evening, not, admittedly not with the same Quite pianist. But you yeah. just think, well, where does circus take over from, yeah. from music making? Yeah. Although the great circus of hearing Pierre Laurent do the complete uh, Stockhausen Klavierstücke recently in, at the QEH, that was amazing. Because actually to hear three of them would have felt like a circus. To hear all 11 felt like a transformative experience. And I was getting more and more into these as he was playing them. And of course, he's so extraordinary. So I heard all five Prokofiev's at the proms. Mm -hmm. And I, it was interesting because certainly two of them are, are, are seldom played, the fourth and the fifth. And so to hear those within the context of the others... I thought that was kind of interesting, but not to be done too often. Mm. Yeah. You, you write about um, atonal music in your book. Right. Can atonal music make you cry? Gosh, we've almost put this. <laughs> I know you asked me to put my phone out, so there we are. No, no, no. no I mean, let's maybe maybe before we, we, we yeah. hand over some questions from the from the floor, as it were. I mean, modern music. You play, should we say, new music? Oh, I don't know what, what the technical term should be. You play music that's been freshly written, but not generally atonal music. Well, I've done some. I've written some. Um, I think the what I think we've in many 
ways now. We're, we're living in a much more eclectic time, and I like that. I like the fact that you can write absolutely blistering atonal music, and you can also write neo-romantic music, and both, if they're well-crafted, mm. are, are fine. There was a time when we were at university yeah, or college you when you couldn't. I mean, you had to write... 12-tone music, and if you didn't, um, you wouldn't get into universe, you wouldn't get commissioned, you wouldn't get broadcast performed. It was a really, it was a totalitarian state within the music world, and that's gone now, and you can do anything, and I think that's great. Um, I just think, yeah, I think music that is is atonal with no sense of tonality, and actually that's quite difficult to do, because the ear is constantly reaching for a melody, for a harmony that it can understand. And that's just how the human brain is made. Uh, and actually, something that they didn't realize in the 1960s and 70s, as, as, as more research has gone into this, the brain does actually respond in different ways to different sounds. So a major chord and a minor chord, apparently you can measure the difference in, in the way the brain literally reacts to that. And that's fascinating, and there's a lot more research to be done into that. I just think if you lose all track... Of, of tonality, then can Canadian music make you cry? Then you you lose that sense, that connection with with the emotional content of music, which I think is what all art is meant to do. But the interesting thing about music, and you make you make the point in the book, is that if you go into an art gallery and you see an abstract painting which you don't like, you simply mm. walk away from it. But actually, if you're in a concert hall and somebody starts playing this stuff. I mean, short of walking out, there's nothing you can't rewind it and say, you know, actually, I need to hear that bit again. Yeah. You've got to sit through it. So and it's kind of unique in that respect. It is. Even a poem, you can go back and start at the beginning. Yeah. But also, I mean, to be fair to the composer writing that music, you, you have to hear the whole piece before you can have a fair assessment. Mm. With a painting, perhaps you can, in 10 seconds, give some sort of an assessment of the whole because you have the whole in front yeah. of you. But music only exists in time which is what makes it so fascinating, because it is a kind of analogy of our lives, you know, which, which are constantly changing and constantly, you, you can only experience life as it's past. And, 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 you know, we only have the present moment. So, you know, that's very similar to how we hear music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe some questions. We've, we've talked a lot of time. Ah, <laughs> oh, a couple couple here, here, yeah. Here comes the mic. Uh, might be a bit of an odd question, but um, you're obviously a very well-read man. So my question is, like, how do you, like, what do you read? How do you choose the books you read? And then also, do you think, like, that your general kind of self-education has an influence on your playing and on your composing? Yeah, I think that everything has an influence on, on playing and, and composing, because I think you know, music and art is about life. I mean, it's about expressing... Um, who we are as, as human beings. And I think the great artists show us more of ourselves. You know, they're like mirrors to, to something and we discover more about ourselves when we read a great book. Um, but books, I don't know. I mean, I'm pretty eclectic. and I don't read quickly, unfortunately. So it, if I choose to read a book, then it takes me a long time. So I have to choose well. And I've begun stopping reading books if they don't interest me after 30, 40 pages, which I never used to do. I always thought it was cheating not to go right to the end of a book. And maybe, like a piece of music, I'm missing something because a book can flourish later on. But I, I don't now have the time or the patience to allow that to happen. But uh, So, yeah, I have a couple of books, actually, at the moment that um, were Cities of Night. I, I think I'm going to give up on that one. <laughs> um, but, yeah. Is that, I think that... Yes, I was going to ask a question. Um, so what do you say is... Uh, hello. Uh, Hi. Hello. Can you hear me? Oh, there we go. Um, yes. What would you say is the future of uh, classical music? Do you see it as bright, 
uh, or tortured? Are we in a minority sport that's um, becoming... Um, Probably, but we've always been in a minority um, area. And I think it's, you know, before the early 20th century, most people had no chance to go to concerts, either for financial reasons or because concerts were not uh, as ubiquitous as they are now. Um, and, and certainly now we can listen to music so much more than we ever could, can't we, with radio and, and free downloads and goodness knows what. I think uh, there are many aspects to this. I think we shouldn't expect yeah. music... Sorry. Do, do, do we listen to it? Do we listen to it rather than hear it, perhaps? Well, uh, we, we have to force ourselves to do that. Um, but that's true of reading, isn't it? It's so much easier now to flit around. And indeed, reading electronically, like I do, my phone has my whole library on it, really. Yeah, I mean, if you go on, on a trip with a couple of books in your briefcase, those are the books you have to read. Now I can flip around. I can go from a Henry James to a Willa Cather to a Mickey Spillane, you know, and, and, and who's to stop me doing that? So that's, that's the danger. But I don't think classical music has ever been easy to listen to. I don't think it should be. It, it isn't necessarily going to appeal to everyone, like a bookshop like this. You know, I, I hope that, that this bookshop is busy every day, but there will not be 500 people queuing up to get inside. And that's just the nature of it. And I think as long as, as it's open to everyone and that everyone has the chance to do it and everyone is encouraged in schools and, and communities to do that, then I'm not so unhappy that it appeals to a few people because people like different things. And I think that's... That's fine. <laughs> no. um, I'm a pianist, um, not of your colour, obviously, um, and I've always been absolutely paralysed with nerves. Yeah. And I was very interested to hear what you said about that. Now, I've, I worked it out that before a concert, if you're, if you're destructively nervous, it's good to be to be a bit nervous you have to be but if you're destructively nervous you're being selfish actually because you're um giving the audience making the audience uncomfortable that's what i say to myself and also the other thing i do is i have a bowl of porridge an hour before backstage yeah gosh but not the steel-cut oats that you <laughs> no, have no, to boil for 45 minutes. No, I have it at home before <laughs> I leave. And, and I find that that's settled. I, I know this is a rather mundane thing to talk about. No, it's a lovely idea. No, it, I, I, if I have porridge, yeah. I find that that settles my stomach. And I think the worst fear is of forgetting, like you said. Yeah. It, using forgetting and mem- memorizing. And um, what if I forget? It's yeah. analogous to being an actor. And I have done yeah. a bit of acting. It's... It's a horrible, horrible thing, this terrible fear that you might stop in the middle, just yeah. blank out. Yeah. You know, um, and that's another thing that I find I battle with. But if I really love the piece, it, that kind of takes over. I mean, we have muscle memory, obviously, of course. But um, <clears throat> if it's something that really moves me myself, mm. I find I can remember it really well. Right. Um, but I think it's been a, a bugbear for me. Yeah, well, I don't think anyone is without those fears. So, though Egon Petri said something about that we'd never be nervous if we were humble, which I, it hasn't helped me to be less nervous. But I think there is a truth to that because the fear of stopping is a fear of, of humiliation, really. Mm. And, and I think if we lose that fear that actually it doesn't really matter that much, then perhaps we can overcome the nerves.
don't know. We'll all have to give it a try next time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hi. Uh, my name is. Uh, my my uh, question is about social media, really. So um, you're fairly prolific on on Twitter, I think, um, from from what I can tell, anyway. Probably too much. Um, <laughs> your books, you know, whether there's Final Retreat or the the new one, are um, very carefully crafted in, in the way that I I read them. Um, your Twitter feed is is good fun. Sometimes it's bit of food. Sometimes it's, I think, your Remova suitcase, I think, featured once. Um, I'm just interested in how you use it. How you, is it really just a bit of fun, or do you think about it? Do you engage with your fans or your listeners or your readers? I think it's a bit of, of all of those things. I don't think take it seriously. I mean, I uh, actually, when I started tweeting, I, I thought I would make sure that every tweet was almost like a poem, that it, it had a real... But I've long left that behind. Um, I think it's a very nice way to engage with people on both of your own terms. You know, I think Facebook is something where it's more about friends connecting. I think Twitter it keeps a certain distance, which sometimes is important because, you know, there are times when people become over, you know, intrusive in a way. And I, I don't just mean because I'm on, on stage in any way, but I think all of us need to have our own space that we control in that way. Otherwise, the modern world just becomes impossible to live in. But I find it a lovely way to connect with people. And I've actually met some wonderful um, friends and had connections with people that um, have been very rich. So I, I, I'm happy about Twitter. Um, I think it's probably made politics more dangerous um, because of its instant. Well, I mean, I don't have to mention the name <laughs> that's in everyone's mind in that sense. I mean, it seems crazy to me that one could start a world war with a tweet um, but of course, that is possible, and I think that's a bad side of it. But um, yeah, everything is how we use it. Yeah. So one, there was a lady here who's been waiting. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll come. Stephen, back. thank you very much. Um, as a professional musician myself, I've heard you play often, and I'm intrigued that you write words and you compose. Um, I think atonal music can make you cry, and you talk about memorization. Um, I think that's also extremely important. And I wondered whether improvisation features in your creative world. You composed. Is improvisation something that you use to make yourself find a composition? Is it somewhere you go when you perform? You talk about the nerves. I mean, each time we play the same piece, it changes. We record pieces and... We change our minds, and it's great to have a recording of what we feel about a piece of music, you yeah. know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 10 years in advance. This is fa fantastically important. But improvisation, I just wondered whether you had a thought about uh, the importance of it or not for you, for you as a creative musician, whether you use it in any way, do publicly sometimes. or privately. Yeah, I can find that I can fool around. If I'm warming up at the keyboard, often backstage, I'll just do some finger exercises or I, I love, so I just love the piano as an instrument. I think it's incredible. You know, I mean, I know the cello is wonderful and the clarinet maybe, but for me, the piano is just the great. And I love just the way a chord sounds and I can be inspired to write something just by the color of a chord. And I, I think this is related much more to jazz actually than it is to classical music because you hear some jazz musicians and they take a riff and it, it might just be a, a bluesy chord that a whole song can come out of. 
Um, well, I mean, a song like The Girl from Ipanema, um, which is also spoken about in the book in, in another context, but there, it's, it's the harmony drives that song and it's, it's color. It's, it's like a, a painter might squeeze some wonderful cobalt blue out of a, a tube and be inspired by that to, to do a whole, um, painting. So yeah, I think it's, it's important. I don't improvise well and I would never do it in public. Uh, some people do. I know classical musicians. Well, Stephen Osborne is someone who's done a lot of improvising. And certainly there are many, uh, of course, the ja- whole world of jazz. Uh, but I think it's something probably I wish I'd done more of when I was young. Because it's certainly a way out of a memory issue. If you can improvise, then you can probably, you know, get out of a, a tight corner if you need to. Yeah. Should we have one? You mentioned uh, your faith or perhaps your questioning faith at the moment how does that affect relate to your music either your playing or your composition or how you approach any of the art forms that you indulge in well there is a, a, a chapter in this this book about how it doesn't affect my playing at all um, i mean how i mean only in the sense that i think one's belief or the way one looks at the world affects everything one does you know whether it's picking up this glass of water i mean everything is related in that way but i don't think um, that believing or not believing has any particular influence, even on the way you write pieces that are specifically texts, setting of religious texts. There are some terrible musical compositions by people who believe fervently, and some wonderful pieces like the Foray Requiem by people who were atheists, basically, or indeed Brahms, uh, German Requiem. I mean, Brahms was always an agnostic. Um, so I don't think that has anything. But I, I like to think that 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 beauty and the beauty of music transcends all of this. And in fact, any real religion um, involves everything that's beautiful and every belief system. I don't think, I don't believe that there's one, even though I, I would identify as a, as a Christian, as a Catholic Christian, I don't certainly don't believe that all of the wisdom is contained there. And I think anywhere that there's truth, um, and there's a lot of truth in atheism, a lot of incredibly important points have been made um, wherever there's truth, then there's God or whatever we want to call God. And I think there's certainly truth and beauty in all of the arts, and we need to cling to those and, and celebrate those. And I think that they will or, or should um, lead us to, to you know, a greater profound way of being human, which is what faith is about in the end. I don't know whether that makes any sense. <laughs> well, maybe I just want to wind up, because in one... Um in one of the chapters, you talk about people coming backstage mm. and saying things to you, you know, either yes. giving you tips right. or... <laughs> when we come backstage after one of your concerts, how would you like us to behave? <laughs> I think with a corkscrew in hand is the best way to behave, actually, and opening a nice bottle of wine. <laughs> no, it's actually, I love meeting people. I, I've done quite a lot of CD signing uh, sessions, and it's, it's wonderful to meet people, and people do say crazy things. And and that's fine, really. And I, I like to meet people in that way. It's a wonderful way to connect with an audience because there can be... I like the formality during a concert. I, I'm not that fond of talking to audiences and making something into a kind of friendly... Um, I think there's something quite nice about the, the separation, like there is between an actor and an audience, between the musician and the audience. But it's nice afterwards if then you can make that connection. Indeed, such as we're doing uh, right now. Wonderful. Stephen, thank you thank so you. much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.